This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There are a lot of people questioning the direction of conventional economics right now, yet even after the biggest spending splurges ever made by governments outside wartime, there's still a lot of talk about fiscal conservatism, paying back the debt, balancing the budget, yet contrarian voices question whether that is the best way forward, whilst others are seeing an end to fiat money and are buying into alternatives. So, in this free half-hour podcast, we'll look at those questioning the way our economies are run, are run and the contrarians who believe that there's a better way. Contrarians who don't always agree with each other because not all contrarians are the same. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, Steve, Jack Stocksley contacted me with a suggestion for this week's topic, which is to look at the various camps that have developed in economic theory, particularly since the the, the global financial crisis, and why some are getting more traction than others, and perhaps not the most healthy ones are the ones getting the most traction, and how some of those uh, contrarian ideas are still based on you know, neoclassical theories and practices, others not. So an example is, and let's start with this, this obsession with Bitcoin. Now, this obsession is because people think fiat money is losing value because there's too much of it. So that is nothing more than the old-fashioned principle of scarcity, isn't it, really? There's not, nothing particularly new about this or healthy. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin has got all – I mean, people are making large amounts of money. And I've got to say, I mean, Max, Max, and, uh, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert told me I should buy when it was 10 quid a Bitcoin, and I didn't, and I should have. I would have made a very, very healthy living out of that, thanks very much. Um, but to me, it's never, been, it, it, it's never been money. What it is, it's, it's harking back to the belief that money should be a commodity. Um, money should have intrinsic value, in other words. That's, that's the basis of the, of the enthusiasm for Bitcoin as a form of money. I, don't, I think the, the other elements of Bitcoin are why I just don't think it could ever take over, particularly its energy consumption, which I'm now told its energy consumption is equivalent to the energy uh, consumption of Thailand. For the number of trades that Bitcoin actually supports, that's ridiculous. Um, but I mean, if you if you were to look if you were to look at fiat money and how that's moved around in banks, and uh, you were to add up all the costs of transactions through running those bank systems and the like, then maybe you'd find that that also came up with no, it. No, you don't. No, it's 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 far cheaper. Mm. Um, it's, 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 there's an intriguing set of things underneath Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin appeals to people who are Aust- have got an Austrian economic orientation. Yeah. That's that's where a lot of the so it is neoclassical economic thinking, isn't it? That's driving the the desire for Bitcoin. No, it's really it's not. It's not it, is, it is strictly Austrian. I mean, the neoclassicals don't even have money in their models. You know, mm. the monetary system is just a bit of frippery. You've got to have there as a veil over barter from the neoclassical. Okay, well, so, so wrong wrong phrase then. But it's it's. I mean, it's, definitely it's, Austrian. It's and, Austrian and, and very much conventional thinking. You know, the idea that uh, and it's yeah. people harking back to 
you know, the loss of the gold standard, really, isn't it? Fundamentally, I think that's true. I mean, they, I mean, you know, just speaking of Max and, and, and Stacey, Max has always was a gold bug and is now a Bitcoin bug. Mm. And uh, and you know, he originally said that gold is money, and that's what it should be the case. I've spoken to uh, once a member of the Conservative Party who's on the Monetary Policy Committee for the uh, British Parliament. He's he's just simply said gold is money. Uh, you know, so there's this this belief in a commodity as money, uh, and gold is but gold you know, backed by gold backed money. Gold wasn't money. Gold ultimately gold backed money. Bitcoin is not backing anything at all. I mean, yeah, we, we, gold, yeah, there's, yeah. there's no currency tied to Bitcoin. We had currencies tied to gold. I mean, that's the big difference. There's no yeah, monetary this, element this, to Bitcoin this, because he can't use it because it's too, as you say, too expensive. Uh, and, you know, other factors as well. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's multinational. You're not going to buy anything on Amazon with, using Bitcoin, are you? Well, what you what you have is people are now like you know, Bitcoin. There are all sorts of other other flaws in its design. The the main one being the energy consumption that's necessary to to enable the mining to then reward the miners to uh, keep the um, keep the private creation of Bitcoin rolling. Uh, but people have then got the Lightning Network sitting on top of that, and transactions occur at the Lightning level, and they're a lot cheaper and a lot faster than Bitcoin. That is that is still happening there. But the number of transactions, I mean, I, I, it'd be intriguing if we can find how many transactions are actually financed by uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, it certainly is. If it was one percent of global global trans commerce, I'd be surprised. Mm. Um, but even uh, even if I, even if it was a hundred percent, say we all went uh, down the Bitcoin road, mm. uh, and it was used as a transactional currency. I mean, I mean, there's an upper limit. I think it's like twenty. That, that, hence the you know this, the idea of this idea of scarcity is what's driving, isn't it? I think there's once it reaches twenty. The idea of scarcity. I mean, it, it, it's a weird form of scarcity because then there are only twenty one million yeah. Bitcoin. You can uh, what's the what's the smallest unit of Bitcoin? Is it a, a millionth or a, uh, that you can actually buy. It can be div- divided down to such a small level. Um, which is still a lot of money. Yeah. But if it, becomes, which is still, well, if it becomes a common yeah. currency, if, if a country exclusively used Bitcoin, and we know there's only going to be 21 million, I mean, uh, prices couldn't go up, could they? If, if production in that country goes up and people want to buy more, and you've only got a limited amount of money in, in circulation, prices would have to go down. It, it, it can only be deflationary, can't it? So that is a real that's, problem. That's, that's a that's effectively the concept that your your currency would deflate. Uh, is that a good thing? Uh, Bitcoin. The, the the thing which appeals to people at like Bitcoin above all else is that it, it, its value rises over time, and this is something which actually saw Neil Ferguson uh, having a discussion about just recently as well, where I quite agreed with him. Uh, money. If you talk about money having three characteristics: is money is a store of value, uh, a means of account. And and uh, a form of a, 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 a enables transactions, and he said, "I don't know that." His comment was that maybe there are a, 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 the, the three are exclusive, uh, because if you're going to use it as a store of value, then you want it to rise in value over time, or at least maintain its value. If you yeah. want to use it for transactions, um, you, you want it to you be want stable. It to be, you 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 you, you, you want it to turn over rapidly but if you have something which is highly valuable it's not desirable to spend it I mean, we had the classic stories of somebody who <laughs> way back in 2010 bought a pizza with a bitcoin yeah. he hadn't bought the pizza he could now buy a pizza buy a pizzeria uh with the bitcoin and therefore it encourages you not to spend which goes against the whole purpose of money. well yeah well and, we, and actually there wouldn't very much to buy either would there because people are not going to borrow 
you know, you're not going to borrow to invest because, uh, you know, because when you've got a deflationary currency. You have to pay back more. Yeah. 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 If you borrow a Bitcoin, have to pay a Bitcoin back in a year's time. You're you're paying an effective interest rate of 100 percent. Given so there'll be no investment. So no one will be buying. So no one will be buying anything, and there'll be no investment. But apart from that, that's a brilliant way to run a country. And that's what that's. And the the other and the other thing about it is is that um, it's something which, if we actually did convert over to cryptocurrencies tomorrow, then everybody who's bought cryptocurrencies would be. A millionaire, and everybody who hadn't would starve to death, and mm. that'd be the end of your social system. So it's something which it actually requires a level of community buy-in that it doesn't exist at the moment, and I don't think it ever will. Well, um, it, won't, it won't. I mean, because the advocates say, look, it's it's finite, it's peer-to-peer, it's borderless, it's honest because it's got this transparent ledger, mm. and there are no gatekeepers. All of those very good reasons for countries like they have in China to say, well, look, we're not going to have that going, you know, yeah, yeah. running right in, in our country. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Bitcoin ultimately, I think, will just become legal, won't it? I, I, my, I think my, it, my feeling is that it will be the energy crunch that does it because – uh, you know, we're, we're going to find at some point some really un, unarguable catastrophe, not something as little as, you know, lose, losing a small town in Canada or having the major, one of Canada's major cities cut off uh, by the rest of the country by a storm. And something that destroys a whole country happens and people say, hang on a second, this is not what we thought the climate was about. And then we've got to cut our energy consumption back. How much can we afford to consume right now? Oh, 20% of our current output because 80% is fossil fuel based. What's the easiest way to save uh, energy? Shut down Bitcoin. Mm. And so I, I do expect that to happen as, uh, and as even, one of even, the even consequences. If that, even if that wasn't the case, I mean, the idea that it's borderless uh, and it's peer-to-peer, which would mean, you know, it could become a global currency where no government knows what the hell's going on. Uh, mm. They they have no control. There's no reason for any central banks. I'm sure, actually, Bitcoiners would probably say, well, that's the, that's the point. There is no need for central banks because it controls itself because it's a, and, it's and, a finite and currency. And that's back to the proto-anarchist uh, mm. elements of Austrian economics because they really believe there shouldn't be a government. So a lot of this is driven by, the, again, the, the Austrian political economy perspective that uh, the government is only there to stuff things up. Uh, we should get rid of the government and not have any, any uh, you know, government structure whatsoever. And to do that, we need a form of money which is not government-based. So here's a Bitcoin. Uh, right. So it, it, it is an Austrian wet dream. So at the very opposite end of the extreme is modern monetary theory. So if you are a supporter of modern monetary theory and Bitcoin, uh, take a long, hard look at yourself because they are, they are poles apart. One is advocating extending the money supply to pay for more government services and create more jobs. And as we said, Bitcoin is the exact opposite of that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so you, you, we do have you know, rival camps turning up. So in terms of intellectual foundations, I've got far more time for modern monetary theory than the the Austrians and the Bitcoin end of the spectrum, as, as you'd appreciate. Mm. Um, uh, and what you know, a large part of it is that a, a country, there is such a thing as a country, there is such a thing as society, contra Maggie Thatcher. And if the government is spending more than it's taking back in taxation, then it's actually adding to demand and adding to your spending power, not subtracting from it, which is what it should be doing. Um, so it's it is a it's a very different perspective on what we're doing, and what it's really saying is that the, the the neoclassical management of the economy that says the government should try to run a surplus is contradicting the function that a government should fulfil in a well-functioning capitalist economy of providing the the most of the money that's used to enable 
private commerce. So it's understandable, isn't it, that people who play the markets are are not going to be that interested in MMT. Uh, they are, because MMT will take away some of their financial instruments, they are going to be interested in Bitcoin because it's all just speculation, which is, of course, what they love. But the other thing is that a lot of the people in the markets, and like Warren, Warren Mosley himself, discovered these principles by being a trader. Mm. Uh, a lot of them have used modern monetary theory as a basis for doing their trades and have come out of it very nicely. And, and those that, that have a in their sort of neoclassical convention perspective, a lot of them, for example, are looking at Japan, we think, oh, Japan's running as huge government surpluses. At some point, people aren't going to be willing to buy Japanese bonds. Therefore, the Japanese yen is going to depreciate. Well, that's called <laughs> the widowmaker trade. Okay, mm. because it's the gov- modern monetary theory point of view, uh, the government can run any, any deficit it likes as long as it doesn't cause inflation. And in my contrary point on MMT, if it doesn't cause you to go into a trade deficit, Japan had the trade surplus, um, so it was insulated to enable the government to spend as much as it wished on uh, on um, to, to counter the impact of the private debt bubble that burst back in Japan in 1990, which they've done. So Japan's now got a, you know, got a government deficit, a debt level of 260% of GDP, and the economy is still sailing along quite nicely. So yeah. traders who took an MMT perspective ended up doing very well out of Japan, and they could simultaneously have done very well out of Bitcoin. And there's no way Japan's going to change that situation either because they've got a, you know, a, an aging economy as well. So there's always going to be a lot of public money needed. But it's interesting, isn't it, when, when the, things in the world go awry, where does everyone, what does everyone buy? They buy out the Japanese yen because it's seen as being a safe haven currency. Yeah, and also the American. That's, 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 yeah. You know, the, the yeah, but things when go, things, yeah, exactly. But, you know, when things aren't going well in America, they also look to the yen as well. So, um, look, traditional economists, the mainstream, of course, you know, tend to lump everyone together. You know, if you're not with them, then you're, you know, you're, you're, you will have heard all these. You're either, take your pick, Steve. What are you, a Marxist, socialist, or a communist? Because they're all the same thing, really, <laughs> aren't they? They're all bad, uh, and they all screw up the economy. Um, but then, you know, what about the uh, just the, the idea of, you know, basically socialism? It, I mean, it is, it's still alive, isn't it? You've got the likes of Richard Wolff, for example. Would you say he's a, he's a socialist? In, in oh, his, he'd say he's in, a socialist, yeah. I mean... The, the word socialist, again, is a bit of a rubber, rubber band. So if you look at the Communist Manifesto and see what the demands were in the Communist Manifesto, uh, yes, there were kind of claims about you know, taking over the, the commanding heights of industry, but there are also demands for universal suffrage um, and, and universal health benefits, which are the sort of things that social democratic countries of Europe have all provided for their people, and they're, they're very vibrant capitalist economies uh, with a strong uh, social democratic uh, state. So socialism per se uh, would mean you know, no more profit motive, no, uh, uh, the, the sort of 100% uh, state ownership of industry, which is what was the rule in Russia and in China before, um, before Deng Xiaoping. Um, and that, uh, you know, when you look at its com- competitive success against, Ameri- against capitalism, it was a failure. It didn't succeed. Um, and that was a major reason why, you know, the Ber- when the Berlin Wall was knocked down, it was knocked down from the east rather than the west. Um, uh, but when you now look where we've got to in the state of the uh, e- ecological catastrophe we're in, uh, a lot of young people are looking at it and saying capitalism is what's screwing the, screwing the, econ- uh, the, the ecology, so capitalism has to go. 
And are we? Do you, do you sense that we are moving a little bit away from that generally? I saw, I saw a video with Richard Wolf talking about how unprepared we were for the pandemic uh, yeah. because of the, the, the profit motive, which uh, focuses on the, the stockpiling of, of medicine. Actually, interestingly, we spoke about it the year before the pandemic as well. We did a, a, a podcast on how uh, the, you know uh, how medicines were uh, overly commercialized. But you know, this mm. idea of stockpiling, I and mean, we've seen that with energy, we've seen it with land, of course, we've seen it with money itself, and without regulation, those with power obviously can hang on to these things and control them for their own benefit but if you try and regulate it well that's communism but i yeah. think um you know i think maybe the tide's turning a little bit or am i just being overly optimistic maybe we- no, I, th- I think the tide is turning i mean you, you look at um i mean i, I uh, have been a fan of janos kornai's work janos died just a couple of years a couple of weeks ago actually janos kornai brilliant hungarian Economist, And he wrote, I think, what is the best analysis and criticism of socialism to say that what you got out of a socialist system, even one without all the travesties of Stalin and Mao and so on, uh, was likely to give you an industrial sector which didn't innovate. Um, and therefore, you'd get stagnation over time, which is if, you know, what, what really happened in Russia was, was stagnation and lack of industrial technological development over time, whereas America had booms and busts, but it had technological development. So that was a, a, a major reason for people to become disillusioned with Russia and pro-capitalist, which is what you certainly saw in all the you know, peripheral states of, of, of the Soviet Union after the, the, its collapse. But now that we're facing ecological catastrophe um, and we've got a young generation that didn't experience the Berlin Wall and to whom the Cold War is, uh, you know, a set of movies their parents watch, um, they they are now much more pro-socialist and critical of capitalism in general and say, yes, there should be public ownership of everything. Um, So, uh, you know, I I think in, in terms of the political power of the ideology of socialism, it's stronger now than it has been ever, ever since the second ever since the great depression so it's interesting how you've got people coming at this from different angles so we we mentioned richard wolf there's also people like peter schiff who's got a, a a very long podcast which i think is almost every day uh he he plays on the financial markets and everyone who plays on the financial markets mm. likes to talk uh and you know he's in in some ways you know he's not a bitcoiner you know, he thinks Bitcoins are like Ponzi schemes, even though he's yeah. a financial marketeer. Uh, also thinks, though, that expanding the money supply is inflationary. Uh, so he's against the – so he's not a modern monetary theorist, and he he, he sees no sense in, in schemes like uh, Biden's most alliterative legislation ever, Biden's Build Back Better bill. Mm. Um, so he's against that. So he sort of sits in the middle. And that's the thing, isn't it? There's so many people – coming at all of these things from different angles and they'll take I'll take a bit of this over here but disagree like you with modern monetary theory but not uh, not with them on their exports and and that's why we've got a very fragmented we've got a lot of people challenging the orthodoxy but uh, not a lot of cohesion in terms of how everyone's attacking it yeah, no, the, it, it's you know the, it's the let a thousand flowers bloom stage when when the flowers aren't the world's uh, most attractive roses Um it is quite crazy how fragmented um, a political and economic ideology is these days, uh, yeah. because there's not a, like there's not, you're talking about um, 
support for socialism, for example, without talking about a labour movement, because there is really no effective labour movement anymore. The unions have been busted over the last 40 years. But even given that, you've now got this strong push for socialism, which is coming out of young people and an environmental interest, not coming out of uh, working class people in factories who want better conditions. So it's it's an incredibly confused situation. Um, and you know, I, I think it's in some ways that is a sign that we are going through a breakdown uh, because there's just, you know the, the system is you know, leading to catastrophes like COVID, uh, the ecological stuff we're seeing, you know, with Canada leading the way at the moment in, in climate change dangers. Uh, and, and we have the effect of austerity in Europe, meaning people are angry about the state and angry about capitalism at the same time over there. And then America, I mean, heaven help us. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an ideological nightmare these days. Yeah, and even in sort of the orthodox circles, they're disagreeing on stuff. So central banks really haven't got a clue what to do right now, and they're all going off in different angles. So some are saying, like Europe, well, we're, we're you know we're, we're not going to we're, we're going to keep on our track. We're going to uh, keep on uh, buying up bonds, and we're going to do that for the foreseeable future. And then you've got New Zealand on the other in completely opposite side of the spectrum that are pushing up interest rates next. Have just done it and going to do it a few more times next year. So, so it's. Yeah. So they think. Yeah, exactly. Watch the wait for the U-turn, folks. Yeah. So um, you can see Jack Stocksley's point then, who got us going off down this avenue, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who think there's something fundamentally wrong with the way the economy is managed right now and the, uh, the theory surrounding it. But try and figure out how and why. Uh, it's a question for a lot of people who go down that road. Who do you turn to? Well, obviously, you turn to Steve Keen and you're listening to this <laughs> podcast. But I mean, you're just one voice out of many. I know, and like the, 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 in one sense, there's a coherent voice, which is the post-Keynesian approach to economics. It subsumes partly subsumes modern monetary theory as well, and that's right. quite a consistent form of analysis. And so, tell do- us more about that then. So, what is post-Keynes? The post-Keynesian school. I hate that term, but anyway, uh, I thought <laughs> we'd, we'd all be beyond school. But you know, they've got the post-Keynesians. Mm. Uh, so you're sort of adding to what is it you're adding to what Keynes stood for and how do you differ from, for example, neo-Keynesians, new Keynesians? I mean, you know, how can the, anyone the fun- be expected to keep up with this? The fundamental <laughs> difference is, is empirical realism uh, because if you, if you see what, what led to the development of the post-Keynesian school, uh, it was, of course, first of all, Keynes' general theory during the Great Depression, and there you had an event which, according to mainstream economics, could not happen, uh, a permanent, a long-lasting slump, massive unemployment, 25% peak in America, fell down to 11% by 36 uh, the government then followed the advice of fundamentally Austrian neoclassical economists to rebalance the books, unemployment back up to 20% again, out comes Keynes's book, and, and, and that's where it got adopted in the community. But what got adopted was Hicks's variation on Keynes, which said that uh, investment can be controlled by the rate of interest. And what he left out of the thinking was Keynes's argument that investment depends upon uh, expectations of profit, and expectations of profit are highly volatile. And... Therefore, expectations are far more important, and it's mm. expectations in an uncertain world. So 
which is easy to demonstrate right now because there's we've seen lack of investment even though interest rates are very low because everyone's going well what happens next yeah you don't know what's going to do so you don't invest if you get lower interest lowering interest rates aren't going to stimulate investment Mm. when you're worried about the future equally high interest rates won't stop you investing if you're optimistic about the future and then those expectations are shared in a herd behavior sort of way Keynes's uh, chapter on that chapter 17 in the general theories the one part of the general theory I think if you read any part you should read chapter 17 uh, and then also with the general theory of employment paper in 1937 so that's where the post Keynesians effectively thought this sounds like not ideology anymore but realism you know yes it's realistic that people invest on the basis of profit expectations uh, it's realistic uh, that money is created by banks. It's realistic that firms face declining costs as they manufacture. We need to assemble a theory that is based on these empirical regularities that describes capitalism accurately. And that's been, if, if anything unites post-Keynesians who differ on a whole range of other things internally in terms of how they actually implement that uh, realism, it's the emphasis upon, is this assumption realistic? And whereas the neoclassicals uh, said, oh, the, the less realistic the assumptions, the more the more powerful the theory, which was a way of sidestepping the fact that their theory had internal logical contradictions, that only a stupid assumption could help them sidestep. So th- this is why I think I think the post-Keynesian is the, the least ideological of the approaches to economics because it began from the point of view of saying we have to be realistic in the way we describe capitalism. So the neo-Keynesians are basically those people that you've described who 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 took in the words of Hicks, yeah, uh, and yeah, and so it's so it's all about interest rates because so, that is the interesting thing, isn't it? For irrespective of where you are, everyone seems quite happy to quote Keynes. That's one of the troubles. Yeah, I mean, like Paul Krugman calls himself a Keynesian. Um, hmm. And with the Keynesian he's talking about is the Keynes who was constructed by Paul Samuelson and, and, and John Hicks, uh, all around the idea of investment being determined by the rate of interest, savings being uh, if people don't consume, therefore they're saving, so savings causes investment. Uh, it was really, it, it's, a, it's a, a reworked version of the 1870s neoclassical thought, which is what Hicks himself admitted in the early 80s, that he got it all wrong and terribly sorry of what I've done for you for the last 50 years. Um, but it, So we, we don't have a foundation in realism, and this is one reason that I find the whole system dynamics approach so appealing, because if you take a look at uh, the work of Jay Forrester, who's the one who established system dynamics as a general way of approaching dynamic systems. Uh, he was inspired by three months of reading mainstream economics. And he was ho- so horrified by what he, what he read. He said, we've got to build an alternative to this, which is based on realism. What you're trying to do with a model is to build a, a representation of reality that behaves much the same way as reality does. And therefore, you can poke your model in some way and see what happens and say, that's what happens if you try the same thing in reality before you actually do it. That's the only real Bennett basis benefit of a model and and that focus on realism uh, is what distinguishes post Keynesians in general and then the system dynamics approach as well the complex systems stuff that I'm into from all the ideology of Marx Marxists at one extreme and Austrians at the other 
Yeah, there you go, Steve King, bringing reality into it again. No wonder people are confused. The, uh, the, the, the there's a problem with models, though, isn't it? Because because you can because you know the people will go, oh yeah, you've got a model. You know, it's, it's like the people distracting uh, uh, against measures to try and control COVID. You know, they'll go, oh yeah, they've got their model, but you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, and uh, show us the model. And of course, there's no way in the world they'd be able to understand the model if you did show it to them. And so you what you're doing in in terms of most people's views, particularly people who want to detract from what you're doing, is you're just creating a black box where you putting stuff in and saying, hey, look what I got out. Well, uh, that's unfortunately what neoclassicals have done. They've given modeling a very bad name because, I mean, like, I'm, I've just been, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of work on climate change these days. And uh, there was a paper that I'm writing a critique of for the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And in that paper, they said they were going to use uh, an earlier model uh, as, a, as a sensitivity check on their... Uh, their models estimates of damages from tipping points in the climate and this particular model uh, assumed that first of all damages were quadratic so you could fit a parabola to say what's going to happen to the economy uh, as temperatures rise you know the 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 damage will be some constant times uh, temperature squared and and they also assumed that one of the points on this on this parabola was uh, 2.5 degrees Celsius will cause 2 to 2% damage to the, um, to the environment. And where did they get those numbers from? They made them up. When you take mm. a look at it, they said, well, 2%, that's fair enough. That's what the government is spending right now on, on uh, environmental protection. But the temperature at the time that they said that was no more than half a degree over, um, over pre-industrial levels, not, uh, as they assumed, 2.5 degrees over industrial levels. So they simply made it up. And you look at it and think, this is garbage. Uh, you've made a garbage assumption. You get a garbage result. So the public scepticism about the models that economists use is quite justified. And when you compare them to the models that scientists and mathematicians and, and epidemiologists build, uh, then those models are far more reliable. There, there may be an assumption which leads you astray at various points, but the models that you know, the hard sciences do are, are, are decent, decent attempts to do to give you a realistic uh, simulating picture of the real world and then use that to guide your policy. Um, the stuff that economists have done, it's no wonder modelling has a bad name. So the the problem with carrying people on, uh, you know, or, or, or helping people investigate is because, you know, as we've explored to, uh, today, there are so many different branches. And there's people that you agree with on some stuff and not on others, you know, mm. uh, for example, uh, with the modern monetary theorists on uh, on imports and exports. There'll be people who are uh, ardent fans of you, but not completely swayed by the climate change argument, for example. So there's people oh, taking... So believe me, I get a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm sure you do. Absolutely. And so stuff on people, COVID as well. Yeah. But how do you... How do you wrap it all up i mean if you if we started by talking about you know bitcoin versus modern monetary theory which is the difference between you know scarcity and uh, and and you know ex- and and money supply uh, which then gets you down to the question about uh, well is it big government versus small government and is does everything which the, actually branches off are you a left winger or a right winger uh, and if this, is, and, this is where I this is where I come back to system dynamics, which of course is the basis of my Minsky software. Uh, yeah. The idea of a system dynamics was to build as, as 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 complete a rendition of the real world as you could do in simulation form, and then see what happens when you poke it. And if you like, I really do recommend reading some papers by Jay Forrester back in the fifties when he was coming up with a general concept, because he was saying that. that 
with a computer, we can actually simulate some elements of the real world faster than they happen in the real world. Obviously, a cut-down version of the model. You don't have a model of every every person on the planet in your computer. Uh, but you you try to build out general characteristics and how one, one part of a system affects other parts of a system. And, and that is what system dynamics enables you to do. And he said, if you build a model based on that ground, you will have a realistic picture of the system you're looking at. And that has has been... It hasn't penetrated economics. The dominance of neoclassical thinking overall and the equilibrium approach uh, and the fact that they do the teaching means that even people in economics have become you know, heretics like myself. Most of them don't even know of system dynamics as a potential alternative approach. And in, I, I, I think there's about two dozen people who work in system dynamics and economics. I know every last one of them. Uh, I might be, I'd be probably fine if you see, you know, I don't know the PhD students, but I know all the published professors. Um, so, And are you all drawing similar conclusions? Yes, yes, this is the thing. Uh, because we're using similar foundations, uh, where realism drives what our models are built on, uh, then so if give you me have a, give a, me a couple, a couple of common conclusions that you've all drawn from well, systems fundamentally standards. the monetary the monetary system we concur with with modern monetary theory on the, on that approach um, the need for uh, investment driven by uncertainty so you you your feedback that fundamentally the expectations of the rate of profit. Uh, are the main thing driving cycles in capitalism. Capitalism is cyclical. You won't have equilibrium. Um, uh, so all, all these, uh, and, and also things like the production systems, you, uh, resilience can break down. If you have a long supply chain, uh, then that is easily breached. Um, the, the dangers of just-in-time, the advantages and dangers of just-in-time manufacturing at the same time. Uh, the fact that if you have a system with lots of buffers, it's harder to, st- to destroy it uh, with exogenous shocks. If you have a streamlined one, it's easy to destroy it with exogenous shocks. So uh, what you find is people who work in system dynamics are really applying a general tool approach uh, to a range of issues. And because the tool itself is correct, it's basically saying things take time. Okay, that's if you wanted to boil it down to its essence, system dynamics is you must include the time dynamics and feedback effects uh, in any system you look at, and it gets incredibly complicated to tie them all together. But the software enables you to do that, and and then you have an interacting complex system, uh, and 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 for that reason, conversations with system dynamics people are really quite straightforward. Whereas if you get involved with a conversation with an Austrian or a Marxist, I mean, you're stuck in, you know talking about uh, subjective value of theory versus uh, the labor theory of value, and you find yourself caught up in a bloody religious conversation, not a practical one. Yeah, but I don't know. You know, these uh, these systems dynamics people, they just sound to me, Steve, like a, a bunch of commie bastards who are just, uh, <laughs> try, just trying to build up arguments, to build up numbers to try and defend their cases. There you go. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sure you get that a lot. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's... Like for example, I'll give you one example where, where system dynamics changed my mind because I, and this is very recent. Um, you remember, you and I used to have conversations about does it, how how does the government create money? And I used to tell you that I thought so much of the government money creation was equivalent to the number of bonds bought by the central bank. Mm. Now, when I read uh, the only thing that surprised me in uh, in Stephanie Kelton's the deficit myth because I agree with everything else was the argument that the deficit self creates money. I thought, well, it's about time I modelled this in Minsky. So I just got out my, my Minsky software and put the model in there and 
Stephanie was right and I was wrong. Uh, the modern monetary theory is correct there and I was wrong on this point. It's the deficit itself that creates money and it also creates the reserves that are used to buy the bonds. So the proportion of the bonds that are bought by the central bank is irrelevant to money creation. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's, there's also bonds being sold by the private banks to the, to the, to the non-bank public. That actually destroys money or converts money into bonds. Um, so there's, it's, it's not, a, not as completely straightforward as the deficit is 100% of the equivalent to money creation. It's actually about 20% because so many bonds are sold to non-bank financial institutions in particular. Uh, but that, that was a point where I looked at the system dynamics and that told me my original expectation was wrong. So I changed my mind. That annoyed some people, um, but that's, that's what made me change my mind, looking at the system dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, that is hopefully that is the future, Steve, and it'll it'll bring people together. But uh, I don't know how we answer uh, poor Jack as to where he goes next. Give him a couple of books that he should be reading. Uh, well, and then <laughs> debunking economics, of course, for sure. Uh, but also, I'd, I'd highly recommend. This is the thing I'm delighted to see. I've been a great advocate of John Blatt's book, Dynamic Economic Systems: A Post-Keynesian Approach, uh, which was out of print for 20 or 30 years and now I found that not only is it back in electronic form it's now being republished I think in hardback and paperback so I'd say get that book as well uh, the one thing that drove Blatt uh, was the need for realism and which is why I called it having been a pure math a, a, one of the world's great applied mathematicians he ended up becoming a, a, a leading a developer of post-Keynesian economic thought because from a mathematician's eye that was the only approach to economics is based on fundamentally on realism. So Blatt's dynamic economic systems and my debunking economics. And, you know, why not buy the new one as well? So, uh, yeah, and, we, you know, maybe you and I should write a book. Maybe uh, that could that could Maybe, be yeah. yeah. We, we so, should start that one day. Yeah. <laughs> let's, think, let's think about that. Uh, so is this a reality school? Is that what we're talking it's about? Fun really? to, it's reality school. I mean, this, that, yes, that's well put because what we're trying to do with a model, a model is a, is a mental representation of an existing system. And what we're saying is you want to have a realistic representation of that system. And what drives both system dynamics in general and then the post-Keynesian school of economics as an instance of economic thought uh, overall is a desire to have realism as the basis of the model. And yeah. whereas everywhere else you look, you get a form of ideology. Great. I've enjoyed that. Uh, I hope Jack did too. Uh, catch you again next week. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. Now, if you enjoyed that, we do a podcast every week, half an hour a week or 40 minutes sometimes if we babble on too much. And uh, you can hear all of them in full if you subscribe at debunkingeconomics.com or become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. Uh, we always release about 10 minutes of each episode so everyone can have a listen. But if you want to hear it in full each week, then become a subscriber and tell your friends about it. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next week. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.